So beginning in Genesis 8, verse 20, and reading excerpts of Genesis 9 as well. Genesis 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, coal and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Uh, moving down to verses 8 to 11 in chapter 9. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Looking down at eight, verses 18 to 19. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is God's word. Thanks, Eugene, for reading God's Word for us. And uh, Tian Chai, Nak Ming, really good to have you uh, on board again. Another pair of shoulders to lay the burden on. Hello, my beloved friends and family in Christ. Welcome to this online service, uh, online live stream of our worship service at Grace Baptist Church. Church, <laughs> I really miss you, and I pray that you're keeping well in the Lord in these challenging times, when we are again under heightened COVID-19 restrictions. Pray that the COVID-19 infections will be under control and that we can gather soon as a church. To our friends who are visiting with us online for the first or second time, I wish that I could meet you in person. We showed the URL and the QR code for the visitor's registration earlier in the service. The details, in case you miss it, the details are also on our website. I ask that you fill in these details to help us find some way to connect with you in these unusual times. Today, we'll continue our 10-part sermon series in Genesis 1-12 to titled Foundations. 
We are on our eighth message, and we will look at Genesis chapter 8, verse 20 to 9, 29 today. As we prepare to hear from God's word, let us prepare our hearts as we seek to hear from God today. Father God, as we approach your word, open our eyes to see, give us ears to see. open our eyes to see and give us ears to hear. May our hearts respond with joy as we perceive your goodness and grace found in Christ Jesus. And as we have a clearer sight of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, change our hearts, free us from pride and self-righteousness, and help us to live lives that increasingly reflect Jesus Christ for your glory and our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The new year comes and we look forward to a new beginning. When we make new year resolutions and hope that this year will be different, we hope to build good new um, eating habits you know, and, and to break bad habits. We plan to eat healthy, exercise, sleep well, and the first month goes well, and we keep out our discipline. Then six weeks on, we stress eat a pint of ice cream and binge watch Disney Plus. I'm sure it's the experience of many of us because it's my experience as well. And we lapse back into our unhealthy patterns of behavior. A new beginning that starts well ends poorly. And we lapse into the bad habits of the previous year. Sounds familiar? Even in our spiritual life, we see this pattern of our human condition. We started off well, we trusted in God's promises, we received Jesus Christ by faith. And in the first few months, we experienced the first flash of joy of conversion and having the guilt of our sins removed. We make progress in Christ-likeness and we pick up new habits. And then, a few months on, we give in to temptation and we sleep and lapse back into sin. Our old patterns of sin and idolatry recur. A new beginning that starts well ends poorly. We lapse back into sin. We wrestle with the question, how can we, how do we face up to our failures in following God? And the Bible speaks to our conditions today. Uh, we see it in today's passage in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20 to 9, 29. Last week, we heard from Eugene about how the flood in Genesis 6 to 8 was God's judgment against the wickedness of man. The flood was an act of uncreation. And we also heard how God saves Noah and his family through the flood. And, and this act was akin to an act of recreation. Noah was like a new Adam, given, given a new beginning. And that is what continues into today's narrative. We will see how we will see how there's a new beginning and how there is a renewed promises in uh, chapter 8, verse 20 to 9, 17. But we will see that the righteous still sin in chapter 9, verse 18 to 29. We see that God renews His covenant with Noah, but the curse of the fall persists in Noah's family. So how do we face up to our failures 
in following God. Ultimately, it's our promise-making and promise-keeping God who saves a people for Himself. That's what really matters. Uh, There are many verses today, so we will not uh, cover every single one. But stay with me, keep your finger on the page of the Bible that you're on, and we will seek to understand God's big idea and main purpose for us in today's passage. So let us get started. If you are like me, you've been keeping up with the news and much of the sporting news this past few days have been focused on the Tokyo Olympics. And Singapore's hope for Olympic medal was on Joseph Schooling. He last won an Olympic gold in the 100 meters butterfly swim competition at the 2016 Rio Olympics. But this time round, he failed to qualify for the semi-finals. And expected criticisms and the expected criticisms did come in. But what surprised me or encouraged me was that the outpouring of kind support was overwhelming. It kind of made me proud to be Singaporean at that point in time. Even Singapore's president weighed in on her support. And schooling, in an interview that had took place a day or two after his, uh, his um, uh, stream uh, competition, said that the support moved him and that he will look ahead and come out with a plan for what he's going to do next. Uh, and he's going to strive to again win a medal. We see here Singaporeans, we by and large overlook his failures and schooling was given this opportunity for a new beginning and he promised to work hard to do better. New beginnings, renewed promises. We see this on a far larger scale in the story of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation and Noah walked with God. We see this uh, account of this of the narrative uh, saying this in Genesis 6-9. Rescued through the judgment of the flood, Noah and his family were given a new beginning and God himself renewed his promises. Remember, the great flood receded and Noah and his family, they were given a new beginning. And then we read in Genesis 8.20, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Noah's first recorded act on coming out of the ark is to build an altar to the Lord. We see this in verse 20 on the screen in front of you. He presents whole burnt offerings, using some of the clean animals and birds. While this sacrifice expressed Noah's gratitude and thankfulness for God's divine deliverance, this act of sacrifice is also a prototype act of atonement. We see this idea of burnt offerings being developed further in Leviticus chapter 1. And the word pleasing aroma, the mention of this word pleasing aroma, gives a hint to this idea. And the word pleasing has a sense, an idea of rest, of tranquility, has an idea of soothing in the original language. Noah's burnt offering soothes God's anger at human sin. God's wrath has been turned aside. 
even though Genesis chapter 2, verse 21 tells us, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. The Bible affirms man's inclination towards sin. But atonement through sacrifice is possible, securing a peaceful relationship between the Lord and humankind. God in Genesis 3, as a result of the rebellion of Adam and Eve, cursed the ground. But here, as a consequence of Noah's sacrifice, God said that I will never again curse the ground. We see this in uh, Genesis 8.21. God will not send another flood. We see that God is not revoking the curse that he pronounced in Genesis 3.17, which continues to be in place. But instead, God will not flood the earth again in judgment. And then at the end of uh, Genesis chapter 8, we see that God establishes the seasons. And then we move on to chapter 9, and we see that God repeats his commands to Noah and his family that he had given to Adam and Eve in verses uh, 1 to 7. This section is bookmarked by the phrase, be fruitful and multiply. We see this in chapter 1 and chapter 7. So God's speech to Noah and his sons here closely parallels Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 to 30. However, Due to the ever-widening impact of the fall and the wickedness of man, God gives two significant changes. Firstly, we note that the original positive instruction to exercise carrying dominion over the earth's living creatures is instead replaced by the negative command that the creatures will now fear and dread human beings. Secondly, while the original emphasis was on people's eating from plants, Humans are now permitted to eat animals. God now permits the taking of animal life for food, although he still maintains that the animal's blood remains sacred and is not to be consumed. And this act acknowledges that all life is from God. And following God's command about the killing of animals, God addresses the issue of the murder of another human being in verses 5 to 6. Violence by all flesh, meaning by man and animals, prompted God to send the flood. We actually see this in Genesis 6.11 and 6.13. If human nature has not improved after the flood, how will wickedness and violence then be restrained in the future? And God actually does this. He gave this restraint. By, he restrains evil and wickedness by giving this legal command in verses 5 to 6. We see God saying, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I require it. And from man, uh, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. This verses meant that any animal or person that takes a human life will be held accountable by God, okay? working through human representatives. God is gracious. He gives this law to restrain wickedness. And we see also that human life is so highly valued 
that this punishment system protects life because God made man in his own image. To murder another human being is to murder what is most like God and thus deem an attack on God himself. God's speech ends as it begins in verse 1, repeating what God said in Genesis 8.17 and echoing Genesis 1.28. That man ought to be fruitful and multiply. God wants humanity to flourish and fill the earth and not be destroyed by violence or another flood. God repeats the command given to man, uh, to Noah in verse, uh, uh, given to man in uh, Genesis 1, verse 28, to Noah in verse 7. Noah is now the new head or representative for humanity, pointing to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the final and perfect head of this new humanity. God's promises to Noah will also apply to all who are descending from Noah. We move on to the next section in 8.17. In verses 8 to 17, we see God establish the covenant with Noah and with all living creatures. Genesis 9.9, God promises, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. This covenant was briefly mentioned before the flood in 6.18. And this covenant is the first covenant explicitly named in Genesis. Although God made a prototype covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, uh, and God will, continue, uh, will go on to establish a similar covenant with Abraham and his descendants in Genesis 17. And we see eventually Jesus Christ will establish a new covenant by His blood in the Gospels. So we see this theme of covenant being uh, talked about throughout the Bible. But what exactly is a covenant? What exactly is a covenant? A covenant is a stunning promise of love and responsibility. A covenant formally binds two parties together in a relationship based on mutual personal commitment with consequences for keeping or breaking the commitment. God makes this kind of covenant with a group of people by covenanting with the one that represents them. In this case, Noah. And then everyone else then experiences the covenant because they are included in the representative, which in this case is Noah. We see that animals and Noah's descendants are included in this covenant. Again, showing Noah to be a kind of new Adam. God states in verse 11 that there will never again be a flood to destroy the earth, emphasizing that this covenant that he's making is for all living creatures. God guarantees all humanity blessings that come through Noah. God shows mercy based on sacrifice. Verse 21, pointing forward ultimately to the mercy that comes through the sacrifice of Christ. This section ends with God's giving the designated sign of the covenant. And this, is, uh, the, this sign is the rainbow. Um, when rain clouds are in the sky, the rainbow present will be a reminder, a visible reminder to humanity of God's everlasting covenant 
to them. The covenant is a stunning promise of love and responsibility. And we find that all of God's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1.20. Our God is a promise-making and promise-keeping God who saves a people for Himself in Christ Jesus. And we keep faith with God because we know God is faithful and He will keep His covenant with us. What this means for us, my friends, when we are tempted to walk away, believers, remember that our God keeps covenant with us and we continue to keep faith with God. When we are discouraged, maybe because of various life circumstances or maybe because of things that are happening in our family, believers, remember that God keeps covenant with us and may your heart be strengthened. When we are tempted to stray away, uh, not need to stray away, but to stay away from God after we stray, believers, remember that God keeps covenant and come back to God. My friends, the reality of this vertical relationship with God, our covenantal keeping, uh, making and keeping God, undergirds and drives our church members' covenant. When we join a church as a member, we covenant with one another. We are part of this horizontal relationships of promise and responsibility. Ask yourself, what areas of my relationship in the church do I have to keep covenant? How can we continue to tell and encourage each other in the gospel, especially in this challenging, unusual COVID-19 times where we can barely even meet in person? In, in what ways can we help one another grow towards Christ's likeness? My friends, practice the love and responsibility of our covenant committing to one another in Grace Baptist Church. <coughs> it doesn't always have to be a formal Bible study, although I affirm its great importance. The Bible study helps us to better understand the Word and what the Word says about our covenant commitment. But you can live out the covenant through simple acts like praying for one another. You can approach your church office or your CG leaders for a copy of the members' directory. With it, you can pray for our church members. Pray that the gospel is established and rooted in their hearts, that they will continue to grow towards Christ's likeness. You can also engage in ordinary conversations. Seed our speaking with encouragement that comes from the gospel. Give each other a call, meet each other with Zoom, encourage one another through that. Cultivate obedience to Christ with an appeal that comes from the Word. Another practical way to fulfill our covenant commitment to one another, to show love and responsibility to one another, is to partner with Tian Chai and the member care team. They have some plans to reach out and better care for our struggling members, especially during this COVID-19 phase 2 heightened alert time. So contact them and let them know that you're keen to help. We can employ praying, ordinary conversations, and practical care through uh, help, uh, practical care through helping with the member care team. And by doing so, we can lift out the application on the members' covenant. And in doing so, 
we reflect the faithfulness of our God who keeps covenant with us. Sorry, it's, uh, you know, when you spend most of your time at home looking at a screen and, and not speaking as often, your throat sometimes gets scratchy when you speak too long. So pardon my scratchy throat. Let's go on then to the next section of this uh, um, sermon, this message. We'll look at how the righteous still sin. Many of us will know this guy. Uh, this is John Wesley. Next slide, please. John Wesley was a preacher, theologian, evangelist in the 1700s. Now He was educated in Christian schools, theologically trained and qualified, and was even ordained as an Anglican priest. He even led the Holy Club, formed to study and pursue a devout Christian life. However, he had a failed uh, stint of ministry, and then, in order to, to reflect and recover from that, he spent time with some Moravian Christians. And only when he was with the Moravian Christians, spending time with them, did he really experience conversion. He called this time, that he, uh, this, this event in his life, an evangelical conversion. He was converted first to a Christian culture and worked hard at Christian matters, but he was not spiritually converted. It was only when he understood the sinfulness of his sin and the depths of God's grace that he had a new beginning and new life. John Wesley later led a revival movement with the Church of England and founded the Methodist denomination. Wow, that's water. Thank you very much. He was by others reckoning a righteous man who was deeply committed to preaching the gospel. However, Christianity Today, a Christian magazine, featured an article in 2018 titled The Sad Story of Methodist Founder John Wesley's Marriage. John Wesley, he was frequently absent from home. He neglected his family and this led to the breakdown of his marriage. He failed in leading and caring for his family. A righteous man, yet he failed in this area of caring for his family. We see the same fallen human condition in Noah. Likewise, the Bible commended Noah as being righteous. He's considered righteous. You see this in Genesis 6, chapter 9. Uh, sorry, chapter 6, verse 9. But Noah still sinned. And we see this in uh, 9, 18 to 29 where a new beginning that starts well ends poorly and humanity laps back into sin. Working harder doesn't help. Because of the fall, we have inherited a sinful nature. Let me just take a drink here. We see next the cursing of Canaan. And we see verses 18 to 19 concludes the flood story and introduces Ham's son, Canaan. And this reference to Canaan prepares the, for the events of verses 20 to 29. And what follows in this verses 20 to 29 gives an unexpected sequel to the flood story. You expect with a new beginning 
and the new Adam in the righteous Noah, you would think that the story will go from strength to strength as we see righteousness flood and fill the earth. <coughs> However, after the flood and the new creation comes another fall, a fall by Noah, a sort of second Adam, in that he, like Adam, is the father of the whole human race. So what happened? Noah's drunkenness, we see next Noah's drunkenness and Ham's indiscretion. And, and we see the sin that proliferates in that family, in Noah's family. And, and this led to the contrasting blessings and curses regarding the future of Shem, uh, Jephthah, and Ham's son, Canaan. Verse 20, as we read in your Bible, it starts so promisingly. Noah is called a man of Saul, and he mentions his success in growing vines. His success gives a hint to the fresh start after the flood. The earth was yielding its fruitfulness, despite God's curse on the ground in Genesis 3. However, Noah drank of the vine, uh, drank of the wine, and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. We see this in verse 21. This crisp, sharp description of Noah's drunkenness indicates disapproval. Noah commits the sin of drunkenness. He lacked self-control. Ham's action, however, are the object of even more severe criticism. We see in verse 22, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Picture the scene. Ham goes in, sees Noah flat out drunk, stuck naked, and he looked unashamedly at the nakedness of his father in the tent. And then he goes out and reports to his brothers. Now, some commentators say that this verse points to some sexual immorality, but there's no indication in the text that conclusively points to Ham being involved in any perverse sexual behavior. What Ham did was he saw his father drunk and naked. I mean, in our Asian context, if we see our, our parent in a state of disrepair, we will honor him by covering that parent, our parent. But Ham did not do that. No? Though the text did not explicitly state what happened, it's clear that Ham ridiculed, humiliated, and dishonored his father. It was also apparent that he sought to make his brothers a party to that humiliation. You know, he probably go out, the text gives the indication that he probably went out, told his two brothers and said, hey, let's go in and, 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 and look at our father and mock him. So he was trying to part, uh, make his brothers a party to this sin as well. Ham sinned against his father by not honouring his parent. Ham's brother instead though, they made every effort to avoid seeing Noah's naked body. In fact, we are told twice that they approach him backwards to avoid seeing their father naked. We see this in verse 23. The response of Shem and Zephyr contrasts Ham's actions as the brothers honour their father despite Noah's foolish behaviour. The critical point in this verses was that sin again reared its ugly head in Noah's family so quickly after a new beginning. 
and we see the consequences of this sin, of sin, in verses 24 to 27. Noah's reaction to Ham's action was to curse Canaan, Ham's son. And the Bible hinted at this outcome, for twice previously in the narration, the text mentioned that Ham was the father of Canaan. Canaan was cursed to be a servant of servants. Noah's curse of, on, of Canaan, which focused on being a servant, anticipates the judgment that will later occur to the Canaanites. And we see that in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Noah blesses the Lord, and Shem, however, is given a pride of place, as implied by Noah's remark that Japheth will dwell in the hands of Shem. Shem lines, Shem's offspring and Shem's line is the one that leads to Abraham and the Israelites. And this announcement is the first indication that God will make Shem's people his people. So, and we realize that Shem, if we trace his offspring, is not only the ancestor of the nation of Israel. It means that Shem's ancestral line will produce the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. The Gospel writer Luke, some centuries later, records this for us in Luke chapter 3, verse 36. The seed of the woman that culminates in the serpent-crushing Redeemer, Jesus Christ, is preserved and it continues in the line of Shem. The story of Noah ends with a familiar ring. It ends with verses 28-29. After the flood, Noah lives 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. The report of Noah's death continues the pattern used throughout Genesis 5 to describe Adam's and his descendants' total age and death. These two verses tell us that humanity is still under the curse of the fall. We still die. New beginnings, covenant renewed, a new Adam, the righteous Noah, but the impact of the fall continues. Sin occurs. Humanity, we cannot win free of the sin nature that we inherited from Adam and Eve's rebellion. We are all failures at keeping God's covenant. How then do we face and deal with our failures in following God, in keeping His covenant? My friends, the good news is it doesn't depend on our failures and success. We rely on our faithful covenant-making and promise-keeping God who saves. Our faithful God continues to make His, make His covenant with His people and deals with the sinful nature inside us. And we see this as we trace the theme of covenant uh, through the Bible. We're going to just look at two places we see first, God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 to 34. I know the words are not on the screen, but listen as I read the entire passage for us. So this is Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all, they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Pause and let this verse sing to your hearts. What gracious words to us sinners who cannot keep covenant. You see here that God makes a covenant that promises forgiveness of sin and that He will write His laws on our hearts. Fast forward to the time of the Gospel writer Luke. Luke records what Jesus said and did in Luke chapter 19, uh, sorry, Luke chapter 22, verse 19 to 20. And He, meaning Jesus, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is My body which is given to you, do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. At the Lord's Supper, Jesus, at this point, he establishes a new covenant with believers in his blood. In Jesus Christ, believers, we have this new covenant in Jesus' blood with God. In Jesus Christ, the penalty for our sins are paid for. Our sins are forgiven. In Jesus Christ, the power of sin is broken. God writes His law on our hearts. Our old sin nature is written over with the new nature in Christ. However, until we meet Jesus Christ or when Jesus Christ returns, sin is still present. There's still a presence of sin. And we see this as the ongoing impact of the fall. But in Jesus Christ, we believers can be confident that we will one day meet Him. And on that day, there will be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears. Again, let that sink in. This is the promise of our faithful covenantal God and He will keep this promise. But sin is still present. And we see this not only in, in the life of the righteous man, Noah, but it's also in our own lives right now. My friends, ask yourself, what areas of my life do I still have to confess? Do I have to confess and turn in faith to Jesus Christ? Unlike what the culture tells us, the Bible makes a radical claim. The culture tells us that our problems are outside us. You know, our dysfunctional family, our unjust society, you know, our boss that bullies us, bullies us our classmates that continues to you know, just be unkind towards us. And, and culture tells us that the solution is in us. 
We just have to work harder to be better to overcome. The Bible instead tells us that the problem is inside us. Our sinful nature. And that the solution is found outside us. It is only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has to do the work of rewriting our hearts. For my non-Christian friends who are watching in, the promise-making and promise-keeping God can be your God as well. This promise that is given in Jeremiah 31 to 30, chapter 31 can also uh, uh, be yours as well. Right? This God can be your God, giving you hope of a real change from the inside out. And my friends, how, how do you, how do you um, um, enter in this covenant with God? You acknowledge that you cannot change yourself, that only God can change and forgive you. Believe that through Jesus Christ, you can be recipients of this new covenant that God makes with us. And confess that Jesus Christ is indeed the true and better righteous one, through whom God establishes and keeps these promises to us. And to my Christian friends, to those who are members of GBC, remember, even the righteous Noah sinned. What this means for us is not only do we turn to God in repentance and faith when we first trusted in Jesus, but we also continue to do so in our walk with God. I know sometimes the situations and temptations we face are real. You know, we face challenges, suffering, afflictions in this life. We face others, even other Christians that sin against us. My friends, a large part of the solution lies with recognizing that the problem is also inside us. Our sinful nature still plagues us. We still need to confess our sins and rely on Jesus in our growth to godliness. It also has applications in our relationships with others in our family and church, especially in our conflicts with one another. Even though how righteous we think our intentions, speech, and actions are that led to the conflict. My friends, if you honestly search your heart, you'll find that you have also sinned in this conflict as well. Your sinful nature will tempt you to justify yourself. I know that. Uh, my, in, uh, my sinful nature is like my inner lawyer trying to justify everything that I do is, is righteous. But acknowledge that we have a sinful nature. Uh, that we sin, uh, turn first to God and confess. And then we can approach the person we have a conflict with, we can approach a person in humility because we realize that our sin also plays a part in this conflict. And then we can apologize and ask for forgiveness. I know some of you are asking, but what if the other person don't reciprocate? What if the other person don't respond? My friends, your responsibility is to initiate reconciliation to confess your own sins, initiate, uh, confess your sin in the part you play in this conflict, you uh, initiate uh, reconciliation, you leave the person's response to God. Finally, Bible teacher Van Gameren helpfully reminds us, even a man as great as Noah 
required mercy from God. In Jesus, the seed descendant of Noah, over whom the floods of divine judgment pass, this mercy was secured at the climax of all human history at the cross. It is available to all, then or today, who by faith call on the name of the Lord and look to Christ. We should be encouraged that God keeps His promise in Christ Jesus and saves a people for Himself despite our sinfulness. And as we draw to a close and as I ask the song leaders to prepare to come up, my friends, ask yourself, in what ways has the promise-making and promise-keeping God spoken encouragement to my life situation today? In what ways has the promise-making, promise-keeping God spoken encouragement into my life situation today? And remember this, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Saviour loves me so. He will hold me fast. For my life He bled and died. Jesus will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with Him to endless life. I love this. He will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when He comes at last. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. Even though I waver, even though I, I falter, even though I fail, my Saviour will hold me fast. For my Saviour loves me so, He will hold me fast. I invite you now, wherever you are, to stand with me as I close in prayer, as our pianist starts to play for our song of response. So let us close in prayer. Father God, thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ. For my life, He bled and died on the cross. Your justice has been satisfied. We are now raised with Christ to everlasting life Jesus Christ will indeed hold us fast. Your faith is finally turned to sight when He comes at last. Thank you, Lord, that you are God who makes a promise to save a people for yourself. Despite our sinfulness, you keep your promise through Jesus Christ. Father God, we thank you, we praise you, and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.